should just fall open to Mark, right? It does, it does. Very good. That means we're doing our job then, right? We'll turn to your Bible to Mark. That's the book that opens right up. Mark will be, be uh, joining in uh, Mark chapter 14, and we'll begin reading at verse 53. Mark chapter 14, and verse 53. Last week we literally studied the betrayal, the, the gathering of that large group of soldiers and police, those representatives of the Sanhedrin, all of them gathered probably upwards of towards a thousand people as they took Jesus, unarmed, totally wide open, and met them, if you will, approached them. And as they've taken him now, in verse 53, Mark chapter 14, continues the narrative. And they led Jesus away to the high priest. And with him were assembled all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes. And Peter followed them afar off, even into the palace of the high priest. And he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. And the chief priests and all the council sought for witness against Jesus to put him to death and found none. For many bear false witness against him, but their witness agreed not together. There arose certain and bear false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But neither so did their witnesses agree together. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witnesses against thee? But he held his peace and answered nothing. Again the high priest asked him and said unto him, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest rent his clothes and saith, What need we for any further witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What think you? And they all condemned him to be guilty of death. And some began to spit on him, and to cover his face, and to buffet him, and to say unto him, Prophesy! And the servants did strike him with the palms of their hands. May God add a special blessing to the reading of his word, and let's just pause to bow for prayer prior to our study. Father, here we are again, lifting up before you our request, not only to learn more about you, but Father, to know you more. As Paul's desire for his life was to know you better. Father, that's our desire. Take the word now, Father, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, we ask exclusively would be our teacher today, that you would unfold the truths one at a time, allowing us to ponder within our hearts even moments and days beyond this of the seriousness, the specialness, and the love that was bestowed upon us by this one, Jesus, the Messiah. Father, we are certainly blessed to be able to have access to your word, let alone the spirit as it unfolds and deciphers us for us. We thank you in advance for what you'll be doing in these moments, praising your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, <clears throat> it's been a wild week, hasn't it? Not just the week that you've lived through, but this week of this Passion Week. Jesus started back on Saturday as arriving at Lazarus, Mary, and Martha's home, uh, approaching the Passover celebration, the feast, the feast of feasts, literally within Israel. It was the time when they, all from Jewry, from Israel, would have gathered to this place in Jerusalem. 
celebrating. Hundreds of thousands of people would have been within this, the confines of Jerusalem, which no doubt would have been the reason that Jesus would have exited the city every night. And more than likely, some of those disciples would have stayed in that very common place of which he was just betrayed the night before, the hours before in this case, at the Garden of Gethsemane. It was one they frequented often. No doubt it was a place that was away. It was private, probably privately owned, no less. And Jesus and his disciples were welcome to be there. Judas knew of it. But that's Saturday. On Sunday, we traveled through the Scripture and we saw it literally. Jerusalem came out to see Jesus in Bethany because he was the one that raised Lazarus from the dead. Well, that'll get some attention. I mean, that, can you see the headline in the Jerusalem Times? Jesus brings the dead alive. Has any of you seen a dead person come back to life? No. They hadn't either. That brought the people to him. On Monday, they were so excited, literally, and Jesus had set it up. He went and got his own ride. He said, guys, you need to go find this donkey that's in the neighboring Bethage. I want you to get that donkey, and we're, I'm going to ride him, and literally sets up the route for him to be crowned king on Monday. I mean, whoa, the triumphal entry as we know it. Amazing, wasn't it? And hundreds of thousands of people again gathered around him. And I'm sure almost on every one of them single-handedly was to go the next morning, Tuesday morning, go to downtown Roman establishment in the city of Jerusalem and wipe it out and we will be king forever. The kingdom has come. You can, am I doing it loud enough? I mean, it's more exuberant. I mean, it was amazing. I would have, finally, Jesus is finally the Messiah. We're on it. And the first thing he does Tuesday morning, he goes into the temple. Oh, by the way, he cursed the fig tree, which was a picture of Israel. Literally, you guys have had all of this time to produce fruit and nothing has happened. That's amazing. That was the only miracle of which was literally, quote, unquote, destructive. And it was a picture of what was coming to Israel. He goes in, wipe, he starts cleaning this place up. You talk about women. Have you ever had a place that you, 35 acres is what this guy did. Him and his disciples just wiped the place out and he begins teaching. The real word of God. The, the, the place of prayer, his father's place of prayer, was restored literally for Tuesday and Wednesday. The most exhilarating time for hundreds of years for Jesus himself to be teaching in the temple of God. And Wednesday was the big day. That was a massive day. There was so much stuff going on. And I can't, if you notice my reviews are taking longer because we're reviewing the whole week before we get to where we are, I'm trying to speed up. But Wednesday night, actually, if you were to go to Matthew chapter 24 and 25, it's called the Olivet Discourse. Um, those special moments of prediction, of coming, not prediction, but history foretold. That's literally going to be, pro and prophecy is that. It's history told in advance. It's going to happen just that way. That's what's really cool. When God says something and it hasn't happened, that means it's going to happen just the way he says it's going to happen. Uh, on Matthew 24 and 25, there was the questions that the disciples had, risen, had raised, and they're sitting on the Mount of Olives close to, no doubt, the Garden of Gethsemane. It does not say they're in the garden, but they're literally seated on the side of Mount of Olives, and he's describing for them something that will happen. At this point, it's in excess of 2,000 years. His second coming is what the question was revolving. And you know what? When Jesus comes a second time, not to get us in the rapture, not before the tribulation, that's not his coming to the earth. The coming to the earth is the seventh year of the tribulation, of which he literally lands on earth with his believers that he's gathered during the rapture. We will come with him. If you're here today, you know Jesus Christ personally. You will be coming with Jesus at the second coming when he lands on the very mountain of which he was speaking of its coming foretold on the Mount of Olives. He's sitting on the place that he will land on the second coming. Amazing. Those are some of the last segments that he had given to them. However, Thursday brought another day. 
It was the day of preparation for the Passover. It would have been the time when the Galileans, those in the northern part of the country, would have actually celebrated the Passover. Those within Jerusalem celebrated on Friday evening. They were on Thursday evening, which fits perfectly because Jesus absolutely had to have the Passover meal for him to... John 13 through 17. I don't know if you guys knew that before, but John 13 through 17. Those chapters were written by the words that Jesus gave on that night during the Passover. All of that cool instruction. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father by me. Chapter 14 of John. Those words were spoken on the very night that he was betrayed by Judas Iscariot, giving himself for those people. I'm going to go to prepare a place for you. Jesus said that to his disciples, saying it to us through his word today. Those were all to have done in that last moments of that Passover supper. Now, we also know that after that, they went out. They sung a hymn and they went out after the communion service, the Last Supper, the time that they were together intimately. The disciples were very, as usual, um, should we say, delusional. They were talking about who was the greatest. Jesus was giving everything for them. And he was, it was just like, will they never get it? But you know what? All of those lessons, it's kind of like raising kids, you know? You say it a hundred million times, will they ever get it? Eventually, they do. Sometimes. <laughs> and the disciples, interestingly enough, after the fact, I've been thinking of Peter's denial, which we're going to talk about exclusively next week. I'm going to take, what, where did Peter go wrong? How did it happen? How could Peter, the one that loved him, the one that was exuberant, the one that was just exhilarated with who Jesus was, how could he literally three times deny Jesus in a very short time? How could that be? We're going to go through that whole schedule of events of how it unfolded next week. But I want to also say, it's amazing how Peter, all of those missteps, if you will, I just love 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Cast your cares upon him, for he careth for you. And watch out for that Satan. He's like a roaring lion. Be sober, be vigilant. Isn't that exactly what Jesus said to Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane? Watch and... Watch. Yes, I was going to say, oh, we don't want to go over that sermon again. Watch and pray, right? Watch and pray, watch and pray, watch and pray. What perfect words for us even today. Watch and pray, lest you fall into temptation. Well, here we are. <clears throat> uh, Judas has betrayed our Savior. His master, as he called him, I can't, as we spoke last week, how do you ride around with Jesus for three years seeing him in his power over death and demons, disease, over death, all of those things, and literally still come to the fact he was worth 30 pieces of silver to throw him to the wolves. I will not ever understand that. But that's happened. They've now gathered him, a group of about 1,000 people at night. Of course, they didn't want the crowds to, to enter into all of this flurry because the riot that probably would have happened would have totally negated what they wanted, and they wanted Jesus dead. Our text said it again today. They, all they needed now, they already had a verdict. They needed a reason. Have you ever seen it? Has there been courts like that? That's a kangaroo court is what that is. We know what we want to do. Now we just have to figure out how to make that happen. That's literally what this is about. Now, what we have to do, though, we started here because there are literally three Jewish trials, and there are three Gentile trials. There's three of each. Six that happened in a very short time. We do know that we're obviously, when, did, when, when do we, this is kind of for us in, in a, a point of time, in that evening. What did Jesus already foretell to Peter when that he would deny him three times? Before the rooster crows, before the cock crows, which is at 3 o'clock a.m. That would be that point of time. So we know that it's not 3 a.m. yet. 
In fact, we know that in the course of the, of the second trial, that is before Caiaphas, which we have right here in our text in Mark, that that is when the rooster crowed, if you follow through that. Because we'll be looking at next week. It's almost simultaneous. Now, John does an interesting thing. The Gospel of John. We're going to go there in just a second. It's like you have these two things mounting at the same time. You have a display or a narrative of Peter who is just... He's, and it's, it's amazing. He's, he's stuck between curiosity and cowardice. He kind of wants to be there, but he doesn't know why he's there when somebody asks him why he's there. You've ever been in a situation like that? Probably shouldn't even be here, but I'm curious. I want to know. And the further I am, the worse trouble I'm getting in. That would be Peter for that thing. We'll be talking about him. But that's, that's going on. And then John also says, but meanwhile, back at the ranch, at the trial, is this what they're doing to Jesus? It, it's kind of like they're together. Peter is there watching all of this. And it's almost like it's even one more reason to Jesus to finish the mission. Because just like Peter, we've denied him ourselves. We've done it publicly. We've done it privately, but we've all denied Jesus Christ. It's those sins that Jesus is going to the cross for, and all of the others as well. But let's go. What, we, what I'm going to do is there's basically three trials um, that, we find, that we find Jesus going through. And the first one we find actually is in front of Annas, A-N-N-A-S. He's the first guy. He would be known uh, as the godfather he was well into his 80s now. He's the one that controlled the sequences behind the scenes. He was not the high priest. What you've seen here in Mark chapter 14 that we just read is actually Caiaphas, I'm sorry, Annas's son-in-law, Caiaphas. Caiaphas is the present, present day high priest. However, Annas runs this program and has for a very long time. The person that came to mind, and, and I, the antithesis of religion, have you heard of the term rhino? You're thinking of Republican name only? No, these are rhinos. These are religious in name only. These are killers. They're vengeful. They're gruesome. They're everything that isn't God. They're right there. But a man's name that comes to mind, and he's actually, I've actually heard that he passed away this week. Uh, I don't know if it's true or not. I haven't seen it to be, but he's, he's in his, he's got to be close to 90. But it's a man that really does drive from behind the scenes. Now, he's a, he is a, uh, a self-proclaimed atheist, so he has nothing to do with the sense of religion, but he's been around. And if you watch all of the things that are, that are on whatever you'd want to say that are outside of what God's will is, he's pushing it at all times with money. He's pushing, he's pushing, he's pushing. That man is George Soros. You study that man's life, he will sell anybody out. This is who I'm reminded of when I say the word Annas. In fact, Jesus cleared the temple not once but twice. We see it in John chapter 2, where he cleared the temple immediately. Now, that was actually known as, the, you know what these were named? The Bazaar, B-A-Z-A-A-R, the Bazaars of Annas. He was the financial kingpin of religiosity in Jerusalem. He owned this place. How are you doing? Are you starting to get connected with Annas now? That's who this gentleman was. That is the first place that they took Jesus to because he had a job. Mr. Annas' job was to indict Jesus Christ. Um, now, in a court, let's just think, actually, we should, before we do that even, let's go back, and I want to go back through the annals of history, in the, in the Old Testament particularly, in Deuteronomy, which is literally just takes up one month of time, but it was laid out, God laid this out through Moses' servant, to show how citizenship in Israel would look like. How would it look to be governed by God? How should we be doing our lifestyles business? Okay? Within that, this sense of justice, of judgeship, all of that was in just a few verses was lined out very, very clearly. And we'll see 
every single item of that was broken as we're into the trials of Jesus Christ. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 16. Deuteronomy chapter 16. Deuteronomy chapter 16. And we'll turn to, I think, verse 18, I believe. I'll get there in a second. Deuteronomy chapter 16 and verse 18. Now, again, this is, this is background. This is be what would have literally as, as they're entering into, well, it wouldn't be as be with Jesus Christ. Let's say that you had been accused of a crime. These same principles, these same parallel, uh, parallels of justice would have been adhered to by the Jewish courts, if you will. They took it very seriously. In fact, it's amazing that a lot of even the justice within our land is supposed to follow these same things. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 16, now verse 18. Judges and officers shalt thou make thee in all thy gates, which the Lord thy God giveth thee throughout thy tribes, and they shall judge the people with just Judgment. Now, I'm going to stop there for a moment. There are some things that you, you dig into the, to the annals of history. You will find where there was 120 men, and I'm sorry, like leaders of families. There's, if, if there was that many men, 120, which would be a community or a village, then at that point there would have been what would have been called a Sanhedrin. Now, you've heard the word Sanhedrin, but it's in a much grander, it's a grander scope. In Jerusalem, that would have been the Supreme Court. That would have been the grand or the the overarching great Sanhedrin, okay? That's the Supreme Court. Now, in that one, which Jesus will, he's going to be appearing in front of the Sanhedrin. But I want to go beyond that, that that one was one of 71. There would have been 70 that would have made up basically the thirds of scribes, uh, high priests, and Sadducees. Now, the Pharisees would have made up the scribes and the, and the, uh, and the uh, high priests. That's where they would have come. But they were split about three ways. But the point of the matter was it was always an odd number. In this case, the great Sanhedrin or the grand Sanhedrin would have been made of 71 members with the high priest being the 71st vote. Any tie, there was no tie. It was always an odd number. That was the overall. But what he's speaking of here, literally, is that in every town of where there was 120 men or families, then of those, they would have made up another Sanhedrin to judge copiously for whoever would come with an accused and this, again, keep this in mind. This is not a defense or a prosecuting body. Keep that in mind. This is truly just a judge. They are to investigate, not to initiate a crime. Did you get it? Now, you'll see this broken numerous times in Jesus' situation. So if someone comes with a problem... There's two brothers that come before them. This group, this Sanhedrin, now there was not 70 in that, it was 23. There would be 23 out of those potential 120 or greater. Now, those numbers are not stated in your text. But if you do the history and you go through how that was working, literally that's what happened. Now, if you were in, a, in your thinking, well, what if we don't have 120 men in, in, a, in a village? Well, if you have any group, there would be groups of three, five, or seven elders that would serve as judges within even a small, small community. Again, purposes of dealing with something that needed to be judiciously handled. Okay? Let's keep going. Uh, verse 19, thou shalt not rest judgment, thou shalt not respect persons, neither take a gift, a bribe. Hmm. We'll see that in Matthew, that there was a little bit of, let's see, we should be able to buy a couple of witnesses to prove that Jesus is guilty of death, right? Was that clear? It was pretty clear. 
Let's keep going. For a gift doth blind the eyes of the wise, and pervert the words of the righteous. That which is altogether just shalt thou follow, that thou mayest live and inherit the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. You see, God was very, very cognizant of wanting to make sure that justice ruled and reigned through the entire land. And this is hundreds of years before. This is before they even entered into the promised land, of which it took them a lot more years than it should have to get there, right? But nonetheless, that's where the history is. And by the way, they took this very, very seriously. If you were to ask Mr. Annis, the justice system, oh my goodness, he'd have pompously got up on some soapbox and said, he'd have probably pointed to Deuteronomy chapter 16. There's our basis. There's our foundation. And I actually, this is not in your text today, but Caiaphas says, no, it is. It is. Think of this for a moment. Now, so far, all I've done, if you've, and you've, this is history to some of you. You've read this. You've seen it. You've studied it. But literally, if you think of it, Caiaphas is now is trying to get Jesus executed. How many truthful statements have come out of his mouth or anyone else there? Zero. But he says this. Let's go back to our text in Mark. Mark chapter 14. I think it's here anyway. Mark 14. Oh, it doesn't say it right there. I'll find it in a moment. It's probably in Matthew. But he says, I adjure you by the living God. In other words, this is like putting your hand on the Bible and saying, you will agree to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. That's what he's saying to Jesus. I'm like thinking, you haven't told one truth so far, and now you're telling Jesus to tell the truth. <laughs> but I'm off the subject. So now you see the impact of justice at least foreseen by those. Now let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 18, because here we'll find this first trial, if you will, that is before this man, Annas. We'll pick up our, our story, the narrative, in verse 12. John chapter 18, verse 12. Literally, they have bound Jesus. They have taken him, and it says that very same thing in in John chapter 18, verse 12. Then the band and the captain and the officers of the Jews. Now that word for captain actually, again, would revolve around the fact that there says upwards of a thousand men. This is a big group of people. This is not just a little group coming to secretly grab Jesus. They came with power and pomp because they were expecting resistance. They didn't know what to expect. And so this is a big group. They took Jesus and bound him and led him away, verse 13, to Annas first. There it is. For he was father-in-law to Caiaphas, which was the high priest that same year. Now, let me just back up a little bit further. Annas was high priest at one time. And it's just like the president of the United States. You could say if it's a president, you know, President Carter, he'd still, we still address him as President Carter, okay? Even though he's far removed from that office, Annas would have been much the same way. He would have just been described as high priest. He wasn't currently. In fact, he had five sons, direct sons, that served as high priest before Caiaphas. Can you imagine the power that this man wielded? It was over the top. He was fully in charge of this whole escapade and charlatry of who was running the temple. Which, interestingly enough, where do you think the funds came from to pay Judas Iscariot? Or where do you think the funds came from to try to bribe some witnesses? Or where do you think the funds came from to bribe the Roman soldiers that were supposed to say, oh, the disciples came and stole his body? That came out of the temple, God's temple. God's temple. The receipts that people have given to God is being used to betray the Son of God. Ah, right? 
and we think we know about injustice? No, we don't. It appears to Annas, it says in verse 13, verse 14, now it says, Now Caiaphas was he which gave counsel to the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. In fact, if you're going to go to chapter 11 of John, verse 50, they were talking about the fact that Jesus needs to die before the Romans would come and take control over us and we would lose all of our power. But he didn't know what he was saying. Even that evil context, literally, it was expedient for one man to die for the sins of the world. Now, here again, John is poking out, just stating what's going on in the meantime. And Simon Peter, verse 15, followed Jesus. So did another disciple. That disciple was known unto the high priest, went in with Jesus into the palace of the high priest. Actually, have, do you know who that, who that disciple is? That's John. John is the other one that's there, and he knew the high priest. And he says, why don't you let Peter in? Now, this is actually describing, first of all, the fact of where Caiaphas is in all of this. It said, But Peter stood at the door without, then went out that other disciple, which was known unto the high priest, spake unto him that kept the door, and brought in Peter. Now, all of this is taking place about Peter's, we'll be talking about this next week. Then saith the damsel that kept the door unto Peter, Art thou not thou also one of this man's disciples? He said, I am not. The servants and officials stood there who had made a fire of coals, for it was cold, and they warmed themselves, and Peter stood with them and warmed himself. The high priest then asked Jesus of his disciples and of his doctrine. Now, what we've done now is we've entered into Caiaphas. This is, there's two very distinct moments that have taken place. Annas, first of all, is the one that is trying to indict Jesus Christ. It's his job to bring an indictment so that when you go to Caiaphas or the Sanhedrin, while they're gathered with Annas, there's something going on at Caiaphas's house which is another thing that's very, very absurd. There's some things that are protocol that revolved around trials in Jewish, in the Jewish, uh, shall we say, overture of culture. One is a trial could never be held at night. Hmm. Hmm. What time is it? Somewhere between midnight and 3 o'clock, right? That's nighttime, I think. Okay? Hmm. Ah, the other thing. If you're coming before a judge, what is the crime in Jesus' case? There isn't one. What do you mean there isn't one? Then why are we meeting in front of a judge? Because they've already got a verdict. All they need now is an indictment. Right? That's the whole thing. They're trying to put together an, an, an accusation so that we can fit the death penalty. That's all we need because we know what we want to do with him. We want to kill him. But we've got to have something worthy of an indictment to be able to get that. None other than Annas would be that guy to go to. Caiaphas, no doubt, said to his father-in-law, I'll tell you what, you are in charge of everything. We're going to send him to you first. You get an indictment. You send him to me, and we set up. And by the, in the meantime, we're going to be gathering all of the Sanhedrin, these 70 guys. They're going to be gathered up so that we literally can take this thing to the Romans. What, what's, what's the deal with the Romans? Why do we have to have the Romans involved? That's right. They have the capital punishment level. The Jews could not put someone to death. In fact, if the Jews would have put him to death, it would have been done through stoning. Which, interestingly enough, let's talk about the witnesses for a moment. No one could ever be condemned to death, let alone anything else, without at least two to three witnesses that are in agreement, by the way, which they were struggling with. They couldn't find anybody that could say any more than... Oh, well, that's not what I said. Well, and it goes on and on. And they're actually trying to buy these. They're bribing these people. But to be executed, those witnesses would be the first ones to throw the first stones. 
because they're the reason the person was indicted, okay? But here's the other thing. If you as a false witness were shown to be a false witness, you were put to death. The very same thing of which you're accusing the other one of, if you're doing it falsely, that's the same punishment you would receive. In fact, that's even talked about in Leviticus. I think it's chapter 26, verse 14, I think. But it talks about the fact that that's how you deal with those that are false witnesses. You make sure that you eliminate them early. Isn't that interesting? Do you see this is not even any regards for the love of truth in any place, way, or form? Nothing is here. Nothing. As Caiaphas is gathering up the Sanhedrin, Jesus has been taken to Annas. Let's go to Matthew and let's look at that account. Matthew chapter 26. Maybe that's not the one I want to go to. Maybe it's Luke. Just a second. It's okay. Let's read, let's read the one in Matthew. Matthew 26. And they that had laid hold on Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and elders were assembled. This is after they've met with Annas. They brought him here now because Annas, unfortunately, couldn't get an indictment. In fact, he was, he was asking questions. Tell me about your disciples. Tell me about your teaching. Remember that? Tell me, tell me about you. That's totally illegal. In other words, he's trying to get an indictment from Jesus to self-incriminate himself. Have you ever heard of anyone pleading the Fifth Amendment? That's a protection against self-incrimination. Jesus said, I spoke in public. Where's your witnesses? Where are the accusers? Where are they at? Why aren't they telling you? Where's the prosecution? I want something legal. And you remember that's when, that's when a guard backhanded Jesus? How do you speak to the high priest in that manner? Well, what he'd done was illegal, totally. And then he said, who are you? Who do you say you are? This was Caiaphas, his son-in-law. Because everything was blowing up. It was going backwards. Nothing was working. The witnesses weren't even saying the same thing. But one of, they finally had two guys that supposedly had their story together. And they said, well, he said that he was going to destroy this temple and he was going to build it without hands three days later. Really? Is that what he said? Let's go to John and find out what he said. John chapter 2. John chapter 2, verse 19. Let's go there. John 2, verse 19. Is that really what Jesus said? He was talking about the temple? John chapter 2 and verse 19. Yeah, actually, verse 17. It was a question they responded to. John 2, verse 18. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. That's what he said. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple building. Wilt thou rear it up in three days? Verse 21. But he spake of the temple of his body. He wasn't talking about the temple. That was, the, that was what they were accusing him of, that he was going to destroy the temple. Now, do you think that was worthy of death? Especially if he determined himself as being the temple. It was his own body that he was speaking of? Of course not. Of course not. Annas finally just let him go, get him out of here. I don't know what to do with him. I'm not smart enough. This guy is beyond me. He, I, I don't know what to do with him. So he sent him directly then to Caiaphas' house. Now, again, 
if you were to study history, the place of judgment was to be taken place in a hall. It was within an exterior of the temple. It was a perfect place. It was a court. It was a place that was to be held for this in the daytime. They actually met at Caiaphas's house first. In fact, you find that it says courtyard or palace. That's another word for courtyard. Caiaphas's house, which was very exquisite, he and Annas both were very, very wealthy individuals. And he would have had within his house a courtyard. And you found the, the sense of fire. It would have been like an open courtyard that would have been walled in with his own house. They were gathered there in his house. Illegal. Should have never been there. But that was initially where the Sanhedrin came. That group of men that were going to decide about Jesus' fate. Again, now they're looking for witnesses. They're out to go by people. In fact, if you're still in, did I have you in Matthew yet? Let's, let's read this, this portion. Matthew chapter 26, verse 59. Now the chief priests, 59, chapter 26 of Matthew. Now the chief priests and elders and all the council sought false witness against Jesus to put him. Now did you see that? Wait a minute. Is that what we read in Deuteronomy? To seek false witness? No, they're actually buying people to try to bring accusations falsely against Jesus Christ so that we could put him to death. Verse 60, but found none. Yes, though many false witnesses came, yet found they none. At the last came two false witnesses. And they said, this fellow said, I'm able to destroy the temple. Not, he didn't say that, of God. He didn't say that. And to build it in three days. Then the high priest arose and said unto him, answerest thou nothing? Now see, this is, remember when Jesus said nothing? Now wait a minute. Let's wait a minute for a second now. Again, this is a place that they are not to initiate. They are to, what's the right word? I said it. I can't think of it. Investigate. Thank you. They are to investigate. So what's the charge? Who brought it? Is this a truth charge? In other words, how does Jesus respond to this? Would you respond to something that's a lie? No. He did exactly the right thing. He said, that's false. There's nothing to talk about. So he said nothing. Oh, what do you mean? Oh, why aren't you answering? Because there's nothing to answer to. It's a falsehood. And then Caiaphas finally just must have thrown his hands up, and he says this. Keeps going. Answer saw nothing. What is it which these witnesses against you? Jesus held his peace. The high priest answered and said to him, I adjure you. Here it is. This is the verse I was looking for. I adjure you by the living God. In other words, tell the truth. <laughs> no one else has told the truth so far, that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. Now, that's something that Jesus had said rather fluently all across the land. Do you think they wanted him to say the truth? You better believe they did. Because what were they going to do? They were going to call it blasphemy. Now, who is Christ? And he says, art thou the Christ? What is Christ? Who is Christ? The Messiah. The anointed one, the one that was coming, the one that was spoken of all through the Old Testament scriptures. And Jesus is claiming to be that person. Now, Caiaphas is finally at his end. There's nothing more he can get. The false witness thing has fallen apart. His father-in-law let them down. There's nothing left. We have to somehow get Jesus to incriminate himself, which again, that's against the law. But he wants them to say, are you that person? Because now literally, if you're, if you're investigating the law, what would you do with someone that said, I am the Christ? you would investigate whether that's true, right? You don't say it's not true. In fact, Jesus had for three years shown them every possible imaginable reason to claim, to say that he was who he claimed to be. Prove that I'm not the Messiah. That should have been what they would have done. But watch, it was much more distasteful to them. 
Jesus said unto him, Thou hast said, Nevertheless I say unto you, Hereafter shall you see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Go back to Mark, because he says something there that's even more profound. Two words that he claims, and we'll read verse 61 again. We've read it once. Mark chapter 14, look at verse 61. He held his peace. He answered nothing, because the those were false witnesses. Again, the high priest asked him, verse 61, and said, him, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? In fact, in this case, it's probably even more accurate because a Jew, especially a religious leader Jew, would never say the word God out loud. It was too holy for them to say. You remember, it says the Blessed. Okay? You didn't say God out loud. You didn't say Yahweh. You, you, you left that. It was too holy for you. And these people are the ones that are the least holy of anyone. But they're asking, are you that Christ? And how did Jesus respond? I am. Remember what he said in the Garden of Gethsemane? A thousand people just hit the dirt. What did he say? I am. <laughs> There's power in that. He's literally saying, is worse than, I'm saying from Caiaphas' standpoint, this is worse than anticipated. He literally say, I am God. I am who I am. That was how God described himself in the Old Testament scriptures. Yahweh, I am who I am. And Jesus said, I am. Oh, my goodness, right? He's done. He tars his clothes. In fact, there's another one in the Old Testament. In Leviticus, it says the only time that a high priest could tear his clothes is in a blasphemous remark. And, of course, he knew that. And this would have been the time to do that because that, my friends, is worthy of death. Blasphemy. He finally has what he wants. But wait a minute. What if Jesus is the Son of God? See, they didn't take that into consideration, did they? The other thing, as you're voting, let's say you're on Sanhedrin, and this would have been in front of all of them. It's still illegal. In fact, the third time, we'll have to go back to Luke to find it. But the third time of when, oh, I should have wrote, this, wrote the first one. The second one is in front of Caiaphas and the initial gathering and the Sanhedrin. But see, that was done in the middle of the night. That's not in any way, shape, or form legal. But you'll find just briefly... After 6 o'clock, this same group reconvened for just a very short time so that it looked legal because it was in the daytime. And they took a vote again. But did you see what Caiaphas said? He says, you heard it. How do you guys vote? Now, the way it's usually done is the youngest or the most junior members of the, new, of the grand great Sanhedrin would have individually vote at a time the youngest to the oldest or the most junior to the oldest that would not be swayed by those that were the most elderly. Those, In other words, and I've been in situations where I, I want to get the perspective of that guy because he's been on this board for a long period of time. I want to know what he's thinking because he's seen a lot of stuff. That was not the read. They wanted them to vote in Jibut and be responsible for their own vote before anyone else, those are older, would. So they would literally, someone, a scribe would be taking down and we'd call roll call. That person would say... Guilty or not guilty? In this case, it was just this mob that says, he's guilty, condemn him to death. There was no votes taken. Again, totally illegal. Every facet of this trial system was not only incorrect, it was totally malpracticed, unjustly, illegal at every juncture for the Son of God, the perfect, holy, righteous one. Hard to even grab it, isn't it? Oh, did I mention there was a couple other things that shouldn't have happened? There was never a trial on a feast day or the day before a feast day. Whoops. 
Oh, the other thing, here's one that's real important. If someone was condemned to death and he's been execution is coming, there had to be a full 24 hours of time that's taken before he could be executed because there was additional evidence. Those members of the Sanhedrin were asked to fast during that 24 hours so that they were totally in tune with whatever could come to their minds because before they executed one, they wanted to make sure that they had the right verdict. Huh, miss those two. Is there anything that went right? No, accepting this. God used the evil intents and hearts of men to accomplish his purpose because at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, that time was fast approaching. It wasn't quite 3 o'clock in the morning. Cock had not crowed. Peter was getting ready to deny him for the third time. But in literally 12 hours from this point, Jesus would be nailed to a cross, having given up the ghost, saying, It is finished, and that is the end of the beginning to us. It's not the end. The disciples would have seen that as the end, right? Oh, we've lost it. It's over. Our Savior, the guy we walked for three years, we just totally just threw it away. He's dead. He's gone. It's over. And yet it wasn't. It's just like sometimes in your life when it looks the darkest, the bleakest, the most insanely, we can't get anywhere. We're done. It's covered up. We are finished. No. No, not if if you have accepted Christ as Savior. There is no end. There is no end. Praise God. Now, for Judas, he rejected Christ. For every one of those, this, this, is, the, this is the, I'm not going to say the scary part, but this is the realistic part. It's easier for us to hate Judas. I don't know if anyone has ever called their, their son, let alone their dog, Judas. Have you? That name, and you know what the name actually means? Blessed one. That was the most ill-named person. But he was a hypocrite beyond belief. The guy fooled the disciples, his 11 guys that ran around with him for three years. They didn't know that he was a betrayer. They didn't know it. He was so good at being bad. No one knew it. But no one calls their child Judas. Now, he rejected Christ, clearly. He was remorseful. Don't miss that. He's watching this from a distance. We'll, watch, we'll look at this here maybe in a couple of weeks. But we'll see. He was watching from a distance as well. And once he saw that Jesus was condemned, he's close. This, these moments right here in front of us, Jesus is going to be condemned for two different reasons. One of which is blasphemy, which we've just uncovered. Caiaphas saying, it's, I, can you believe this? Blasphemy. Guys, what are we waiting for? I'm going to rip my clothes. This is crazy. The high priest has spoken. He needs to die because he's blaspheming against God. Now, do you know what the Romans think of blasphemy? It's laughable. If you would have went to Pilate and said, hey, we got a problem here. This dude, he says that he's God. Whoop-dee-doo. Who cares? we got about a thousand gods in Rome, and I don't really care about that. Just as long as he doesn't want to be Caesar at the same time. And guess what? Let's go to Luke chapter 23. I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but look at this. Luke chapter 23. Now, as you know, what have we just found him guilty of? Blasphemy. So let's go to Luke chapter 23 and Luke chapter 23, verse 1. Actually, what we should do, let's, let's go, um, 
Let's go to verse 66, because this is actually the meeting of the Sanhedrin as day. This is perfect. This is perfect. I didn't even know it. Here it is right here, right in front of us. Luke chapter 22. Let's go to verse 66. Okay, here we go. As soon as it was day, aha, this is important. The elders of the people and the chief priests and the scribes came together. That's the council. That's the Sanhedrin, the great Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court, and led him into their council. Now they're actually in the place they're supposed to be. Art thou the Christ? Now they're asking the same question, expecting the same result. Tell us. And he said unto them, if I tell you, you will not believe. That's exactly what they've done. And Caiaphas is, you know, he said, I am. And he said, oh, he's blasphemy. He didn't believe. That's exactly what he said the second time. He said, if I tell you, you won't believe. Here we go. And if, you, if I also ask you, and you will not answer me, nor let me go. Hereafter shall the Son of Man sit on the right hand of the power of God. Then they said, All, art thou then the Son of God? And he said unto them, You say that I am. <laughs> this is a little tricky, isn't it? What are, well, what are you going to do with that now, right? Well, they, they've already got, their, they've got their, their sentence. And they said, What need we of any further witness? For we ourselves have heard of his own mouth. What did he say? He said, You say that I am. Uh, <laughs> do you see the stretch? Oh, my goodness. But they'd already decided. Now, what has he been accused of? What have, the, what have they three times claimed that Jesus was guilty of death for? Blasphemy. Okay? Now, Luke chapter 23, verse 1. The whole multitude of them arose and led him unto Pilate. They got to go to the Romans. They began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation. What? What does that have to do with blood? And forbidding to give tribute to Caesar? What? Saying that he himself is Christ, the king. That's totally different. What are they doing? They're trying to get him killed. That's what they're trying to do. Because now these things, Pilate, if he just said, again, I've already unanimous, or animately told you that if he's, oh, he's blaspheming God. That's a really big deal. Would you guys quit boring me with details? Just get out of here. Go, 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 go. They already knew that wouldn't work. So now they're telling, this guy said not to pay taxes. Now, is that what Jesus said? Total fraudulent lie. In fact, they wanted to entrap him. Remember earlier in the week? They came to him, right? They came. Who's, uh, uh, do we pay taxes? Oh, that's a great question for anyone. Try in America. Are you for taxes? Well, actually, I'm not. But, right? And what does he do? Well, give me a coin. I don't know whose image is on that. Caesar's. Well, I'd give to Caesar what's his then. It's perfect. It's perfect, right? But he said, be sure and give to God what's God's. That's what he said. He didn't say not to pay taxes. He didn't say that at all. And then it gets better. It says that he's a king. He wants to be a Caesar. Now Pilate's antenna are, whoo, they are going nuts, right? He is all over this. Amazing how that changed in just a matter of moments. Did you see it? It was moments. They, they, I should say, this is the last one, the Sanhedrin meeting. That was actually, that was, if, if you want to say, it was actually legal, with the exception of the fact that they needed 24 hours before they would execute one. They're literally going to do it within 12. There's nothing, the voting was incorrect. All of that, it's just totally wrong. But they finally met appropriately. They've given the accusation, the indictment, and now they have the sentence. He's to die for blasphemy. Within a matter of minutes, they go to Pilate and say, oh, by the way, this guy says he's king. And he doesn't think you should pay taxes to Rome. Is that what he said? What a railroad. What a railroad. But 
Let's go back to where I was, what we were working on. Judas, does he deserve to go to hell? Most everybody would say, yeah, that's correct. Right? It's pretty hard not to. That's probably the biggest injustice ever done. To sell out the Son of God, the sinless Son of God, the Christ, the Christos, the Anointed One, the Messiah, the person that God literally designed to come at the perfectly at the right time that came in a manger in Bethlehem, predicted in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. All of that being fulfilled. And then Judas, to have betrayed him, right? He sounds like he's hellbound. Uh, these religiosity people, the rhinos, did they deserve to go to hell? That's where I'm going, just hang on. <laughs> yeah, that's right, you stepped ahead of the class, actually, for a moment. You see, it's easy for us to see the blatantness, right? And why? 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 This, this is very, very, very important. Why is Judas, because you got Judas and Peter, there's two men living at the same time on the same planet. They were both disciples. They both failed. One of them betrayed him, which is monstrous. But Peter, in all of his confidence, denied Jesus three times and said he didn't know him. And one of them, which we find next week, sorry, I can't let it. You remember Malchus? That was the guy that Peter whacked off his ear, right? There was actually a kinsman or a family member, a relative of the guy that he whacked his ear off, and the last person was, I know you. <laughs> of course he knew him because he cut off his relative's ear, right? And Peter's, oh, no, no. And he actually with vulgarity and profanity and says, no, absolutely not. I swear I don't know him. And then that was when Jesus looked at him. And that's when Peter. But there's a difference between repentance and remorse. Don't ever miss that. Judas had a great deal of remorse, and he's living in hell. Peter responded with repentance. He said, that was wrong, and I need to turn around and go the other way. That's literally what a sinful life requires. When you trust Christ as Savior, and it's not your strength that turns you around. It's the power and strength within Jesus Christ, that relationship, through repentance that literally you turn and go the other way. These scribes and Pharisees, Religious leaders. I don't even find remorse. I can't see it. You know why? Because the very same things that we find in our country today or the world today own them, power and money. Those two things have put more people in hell than anything else I can think of. It's a much bigger struggle to be a billionaire than to be poverty-stricken. A billionaire exceeds no needs. A man or woman to be trusted with a whole lot of money, money they can't even comprehend, is more dangerous than someone that has nothing. Because when you have nothing, you look up to Jesus Christ. When you're down and out, when you're in the pit, when there's no place else to go, it's amazing how many people that have been affluent that have had things their way, when things completely fall apart, there's nothing left, that's when they look up for a Savior. Oftentimes, that is a blessing in disguise for the eternity. These religious leaders, these scribes, these Pharisees, these Sanhedrin, now there was one in the Sanhedrin that didn't attend. I can't think of the verse, but I know we'll look at it possibly next week. You know the one that didn't vote on that? It was Joseph of Arimathea. He wasn't there. I don't think he was even there. But we know that he did not condemn Jesus. 
He took a stand. He didn't, re oh, think about this now. If you're in the Sanhedrin, you talk about collective. There's a lot of cults today that control through the, through the uh, I would say, the threat of excommunication. In other words, you're part of the family, and if you don't adhere to what we believe, we're going to kick you out into the cold. It's dangerous, isn't it? And that Sanhedrin would have been much the same way. The cults work that way. Religiosity works that way. It puts fences around you through the sense of just holding and controlling you. That's exactly what they did. Think of, now think of Joseph Arimathea. If you've ever broken away from a cult, I'll tell you, Joseph Arimathea was that man. He was in the Sanhedrin. He was in the group. Guess who asked for Jesus' body after he was crucified? There was two. Nicodemus, remember him? He was described as a Jewish leader. A no, I don't think so. But he would have been a teacher. He would have been a scribe. He would have been one that was very high up in the synagogue. He was a leader. He was a teacher. Remember, he met Jesus at night. Why do you think that was at night? Because he didn't want anybody to see him talk to Jesus in the daytime. But give him credit. It took guts to seek Jesus out. Now, it's daylight now because the crucifixion has taken place. Boy, am I jumping way ahead now, but it, it fits perfectly. Because these are two men that said, I don't care what happens to me if I reject where in my family or my association or whatever it is. I want to be on God's side. Those two men were, jo were Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. They requested of Pilate that they would have his body. What do you think the Sanhedrin were looking at with those two guys? You guys are out. And they said, that's okay, because we're in with Jesus. That's where I want to be. You have the two thieves on the cross. One of them went to paradise. One of them went to hell. The one that said, Lord Jesus, remember me in your paradise. You are the Son of God. He says, today you'll be with me. The other one said, if you're really God, get us out of this situation. Right? That, was the, that was the little God of self again promoting. Right? That God of self is everywhere, isn't it? It's everywhere, and that's the choice that Americans have. That's what the choice of world citizens have today. You have a choice to choose between self, and an atheist is a self-god. That's what we've got. their god is, is self. Any other religion that is aside from Jesus Christ, holy and completely being the only savior of mankind, the only savior, that is truly following self. That's why rewards, the, the works programs, all of these different religiosities, that's why they're so popular, because self is exalted and rewarded. And Jesus broke all of that away. But here's my point, and we'll close here. There's someone today that has chosen not to receive Jesus Christ. And if you've chosen not to receive Christ, then you've rejected Him just as much as Judas or as the chief priests or the Pharisees or the Sadducees. And your place is the same. It's in hell for rejecting Christ. Because there's only one way. I didn't say that. Because it wouldn't mean anything if I said that. When it was Jesus in John 14, when was that? Just a few hours before he had spoken to the disciples. John wrote it down. Those powerful chapters. I'll give you homework again. John chapter 13 through 17. Particularly 13 through 16. Read it again. Those things were said by Jesus. The one that loved them more than anyone could possibly say. And he said this. I'm going to prepare a place for you. That one day you can come where I am. I'm coming to get you. And by the way, I am the truth, the way, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. You either reject that or you receive that. And that 
determines where you go. Doesn't matter if you're a Judas. <laughs> he's, a, he's the scum of the earth, right? Doesn't matter. He rejected him just like there's people today that are rejecting Jesus. Today is the day of salvation. I saw that uh, John MacArthur wrote a letter, an open letter to Governor Newsom. John MacArthur runs the, he has, in what, Grace to You, what's the name of that church uh, in California, Los Angeles? Do you know? No? Um, ah, nobody? Doesn't matter. Large church in Los Angeles, California. And, and been taken to task. Governor Newsom, if you followed him or not followed him, he's better not to follow very much of. Um, he wrote a letter to him. John MacArthur did, the pastor of Grace Community Church. There it is. Got it. Grace Community Church. I'm going to tell you what. You take a man to task? Did he take him to task? I, I don't want to ad lib too much, but it was, a, it was a rather lengthy letter. But it basically said, you're in a position of leadership. This is your responsibility by the, by the power of the Bible. And he lists verses. He said, however, you've been doing this and this and this. And he lines it all out. He just says, and by the way, you still have time to repent. This is the day of salvation. But if you don't, this is what awaits you. There needs to be a little bit more of that, honestly. They need to be accountable for their actions. This covering stuff under the rug or this, you know, well, he's, he's no, no, this is, the Bible is bigger than all of us. The Bible is true. Those people that say the Bible isn't true, prove it's not true. The burden is on you to prove the Bible's not true. Just like Jesus. He says, I am. Now prove that I'm not. Isn't that true? Absolutely. The burden is, and if someone wants to be an atheist, then you need to go through your own thinking. Don't take someone, don't borrow thoughts from someone else. You need to prove there is no God. And you won't be able to do it. C.S. Lewis was a brilliant man and he couldn't do it. In fact, he ended up writing a book that promised the fact of how great God is, and he set out to one to prove that God was a fraud. That's pretty cool, isn't it? You got a brilliant man that really, now this is important. He didn't have an end termination result already in mind. You see, there's some things, well, don't confuse me with the facts. I already know what I want to believe. That's what evolution literally is. Evolution is there because we don't want to believe in a creator. Because if we believe in creator, that means we're responsible to that person that designed and created everything. We are in submission and literally in his power. Heaven forbid if we believe that. Evolution claims, no, oh, it just happened. Just happened. You see what I'm saying? Be honest. Judas, at least, we saw who he was. But it's only the truth that will set you free. It's amazing how we're confronted with, in this, just this lesson today, Jesus was railroaded. Railroaded. As I'm looking across America and I'm looking at more and more court cases, more and more justice, more and more lack thereof, there's railroading everywhere. But none of it really matters. What do you do with Jesus Christ? That's what matters. You either receive him or you reject him. Let's pray. Father God, how clearly this was today, the case against the Son of God was completely falsified. It was illegal. And to think the sinless Son of God to be executed by sinful man. <laughs> Can't even comprehend it. And yet, it still fits your purposes. It still fit everything that needed to happen at perfectly the right time. 
Jesus had taken that battle for him was already over. It was in the Garden of Gethsemane as he was so agonized that he was sweating drops of blood as we looked at a couple of weeks ago. How unimaginable. But there he was. There he was wrestling with what was your will versus what he knew would be coming to him in pain and agony and anguish. Particularly the separation from you, Father, for three hours where even the Father could not look on his Son because of the sin bearer that he had become for those hours as the earth turned dark. And as Jesus finally said those three words that literally liberated us as we're sitting here today, those that are hearing my voice on the internet, Today, we are free because of those words issued by Jesus Christ who fully paid the price. It is finished. And then, God, you proved it. As he lay in the ground, as predicted, as he foretold, for three days, you raised him from the dead. Over the powers of hell, over the powers of Satan, over the powers of all of those that hated him, everything that decried his who he was, Liberty was won when Jesus was risen from the dead. I stand before this place today because Jesus Christ is alive and at the right hand of God. He is alive. Thanksgiving, adoration, worship. Those things come out of our mouths as we try to fulfill some sense of a return for all that you've accomplished for us. There's so much we don't do right, that we don't do well. Father, you continue to work on us. The strength that is awarded us through the power of the Holy Spirit, Father, may that continue. May we be continuing to be filled and yielding to the Spirit. For these days that we're living are difficult. We have a world that says evil is good and good is evil. Woe to those, it says, Isaiah 5.20. May we stand firmly. May we as be as the Joseph of Arimathea, the Nicodemuses that have seen the light, that responded to the truth and received Christ, just stood firm quietly, accomplishing your will on your terms at your time. For, Father, these people that are here are here for such a time as this, just as Esther was told by Mordecai. We are here for such a time as this. Father, we need your help in every aspect, every step of our life, every journeys that we're engaged in. Some of this group, Father, will be many, many miles from here through the course of this week, engaging with people that they've maybe never even seen before. May we proclaim Christ with our lives and with our words because Jesus is needed. Now receive our praise, our honor, our adoration, for you are majestic, awesome in every way, shape, and form. We ask this in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen.